The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we just gave voice to a prayer in a song. We're asking you to do a work here, now, in this moment, when we come to the word before us and we preach it and we listen to it. We just sang, praying, will you please show us Christ? Will you show us your glory? We ask for you then in in saying that, will you do a supernatural work? We gather together with a book printed in English and we talk about it. And it is entirely possible to walk away from the next 45 minutes unmoved, unchanged. Don't let that happen, please. Take this word, these familiar words, And show us something. Show us someone in them. They're about, in in a way, they're about some people who found him and rejoiced exceedingly and gave themselves to him. Will you show him to us in the same way that we would be moved to respond likewise in joy and in surrendered trust? Do that, please, Lord. Show us Christ. Build your church and honor his name. Thank you. Amen. So we began our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been looking at chapter 1 as it describes for us the origins of Jesus. We saw his lineage a couple weeks ago, traced out. And then last week followed that up with the important discussion of the fact that Jesus is not physically descended from Joseph, nor from any man. And yet he is legally an adopted son of Joseph, and so in the line of David the king. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So very important. Such critical doctrine. Where he came from is so critical because of why he came. We saw that in verse 21, reflected in the meaning of the name Jesus itself. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. And that's why he came to save his people from their sins. If we get our minds around that, it is sweet and precious because we have a great problem, sin. Ruins everything, ruins us, ruins everything for us, ruins everything all around us, and then after that it brings eternal judgment from God. That's a problem. But God in grace acted and sent Jesus. That is marvelous. And that moves us. We, we always respond. We are always drawn to person or people that sees a need in us and then acts to, to meet that need in a sacrificial way. That, that moves us. It draws our hearts after that person or people. And that's what Jesus is here for us. He's the lover of our souls, our Savior, giving himself for us to save us from our greatest problem. That's sweet and precious. Jesus, our Savior. And then in today's passage, in chapter 2, 
we get a different picture. We see Jesus in a different role. Not that he's changed or that God's purpose or intention towards us has changed in any way. From God's perspective, this role that we're going to see here today is no less needed, it is no less precious, and no less kind than for him to send Jesus in this way. What we see here is that he's not only Savior, but he's also King, Lord. That is, he is one who is a ruler, who has authority. And what we'll see at first is that that appears perhaps to be somewhat localized. He's king of the Jews, so little people here. But this king of the Jews is in fact king of all the world, king of all of us. And that means something for all of us. That's what we're going to be looking at today in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read the passage, verses 1 to 12, and then pass back through it to clarify some of the important details before then drawing out two observations. So here's Matthew beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That's the text. Unlike Luke... Matthew gives us absolutely nothing about the birth of Jesus, only that it had happened. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And after that, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now that term wise men needs some explanation. It's an attempt to translate the word magi. And if you have an older translation that might actually be printed in your Bible, maybe you've heard that in songs or something, Magi is the word in the original, and some Bibles just carry that directly over because we don't really have a very good English equivalent for that word. These people, these magi, they were a class of people who tried to understand the world or current events and especially events of the future by diving deeply into an assortment of mystical and even dark practices. So things like 
astrology or divination, interpreting signs and wonders in bizarre natural events, dream interpretation, black magic, fortune-telling, palm-reading, that kind of stuff, that category of stuff. They did all that, as I said, to find the, the present and especially the future. And so, because that was a valuable commodity for royal houses, they were often in royal families or attached to kings and kingdoms. Sometimes they were junior members of royal families. It was very common in the ancient world, especially in Babylon, to the east of Israel. That might be where these guys are from. doesn't say. But they would have been attached to royalty. They would have been powerful. They would have been wealthy. But what's important for us to remember about this is that all of that that they were involved in, it is all expressly forbidden by the law of God. So, when these guys, and that's what they are about, when they show up in Jerusalem, or when they show up in Matthew's account being read by Bible believers, they show up, they are not well received. It would be a bit like all of us here and, and a, an entourage of astrologers and palm readers from Vegas come in and start asking questions. We'd all look at them and everybody present and everybody present there in Jerusalem would have thought they were a little bit kooky and definitely wrong. They're about something forbidden. And it's forbidden because it's dabbling in the evil. So these guys are not well-received. We often, and if you've got a little nativity scene at home, they've got a really nice-looking regal figure for each of the three wise men. Nothing says there were three. And they weren't respected, revered people. Kind of looked down upon. And so they are unlikely witnesses they shouldn't be in a story if somebody made up a story and is trying to prove it. They are, they are not favorable witnesses to be included in something. But here they are because this actually happened like this. They came to the capital city and asked where the one born king of the Jews is. Back home in the east, they'd seen his star when it rose. And lots of folks have tried to explain that by looking back into the records of the science of astronomy, not astrology, science of astronomy, and have tried to find scientific record of some celestial events that I'd be talking about. And there are a couple of candidates, but I think, in fact, verse 9 points us towards, indicates that this is a supernatural star. It's not a natural event. It's something supernatural that happened so as to lead them, always staying in front of them until it finally rested over the exact house where Jesus was. The star evidently was not very specific at first. They come to Jerusalem, and then apparently it came back and pointed to the spot. That's supernatural. So they come following a star. Where's the newborn king? Evidently, they knew something of Israel's culture to know that there was going to be a great king expected, not just any king, but someone who was worth knowing and journeying a long distance to come meet, pay homage to. 
So where is he, they ask. And upon being told, they journey. And in verse 11, they find Jesus there in the house with Mary, which sometimes causes some confusion. Shouldn't it say something about a manger or a cattle stall? But it says house. So is, is this like later? Is some, has some time passed? Is Jesus older? Well, probably not. But we don't actually know because it doesn't say. All we know from this and what we'll see next time that he has to be less than two years old at this point because the star appeared two years ago. But it doesn't say. Probably, though, he's still a newborn. Back in that time, the places where cattle were kept were attached to, sometimes even included in the same roof structure. They were right next to houses. So Jesus was probably born at a house. Just in an unexpected, unusual, lowly part of the house because the other parts were all full. He was born in the place where they would usually keep the animals. But that's where he is. Probably still at the place where he was born. And the star lights the path, leading the wise men to him. That's the story. Another one of the vignettes here in the opening couple chapters of Matthew where Matthew has crafted things very carefully trying to show us that Jesus is and should be known as, should be called the Christ. We've seen his pedigree. We've seen his miraculous conception and miraculous birth. And now here, all that was according to prophetic utterances in the past. Now here we find another prophecy fulfilled regarding his birthplace where the Messiah was to be born. And that brings us to our first observation. There's two observations. Here's the first. It's really pretty short, but it's pretty important. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Newsflash. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just like the Christ was supposed to be. Wise men ask about whom they term the king of the Jews. They know he's been born, and everybody knows they're talking about the Christ. But knows they have the Messiah in view. So in verse 4, Herod essentially asks all the biblical scholars for the biblical answer. Where's the Christ to be born? In verse 5, they tell him, when the Christ comes, he will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's what God told us through the prophet Micah. And then we get the verse from Micah 5, 2. But you, this is Micah 5, 2, you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. God said that through Micah hundreds of years before. So God's going to raise up for himself someone who's going to rule his people, one who won't begin at the point when he comes, but his origins are from of old. From way, 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 way back. How far back? Doesn't say. But he calls him something here. He uses a name that's really suggestive. From ancient days. That's the name of God. Way, 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 way back. From, from way, way back. From God. Okay? Doesn't, doesn't say, but it's really suggestive. God's going to raise up one like that who's going to be his great ruler 
from little bitty Bethlehem. There's a great contrast there of humble origins, a little town that's hardly big enough to appear on the map is going to have a king come from it. No one inconsequential, but someone very great. And every Bible scholar knew that. They were all familiar with it. So Matthew puts it right here in this account, chapter 2. And obviously, I read it. You can read it. It's not the same. He doesn't quote it exactly. It's actually pretty different. Why? Sometimes we get confused. We read all these quotes, and in our English Bibles, often they are they're inset and they are put in within quotation marks, and so we, in our modern world, expect verbatim. And you read it, and you say, it's not. What's the deal here? Well, what Matthew's doing is what the Bible often does and what we actually do all the time when we quote the Bible also. He gives the quote such that you know what he's talking about, but he explains, he he adds and clarifies as he's going along. Kind of like if I was to say, for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. What verse is that? John 3.16. But I changed it. I changed only begotten son to Jesus. Why? To clarify and explain. You all know what I'm talking about. I'm referring to that verse. You know right where it is. You even know what I changed. But it helps. He gave Jesus. Yeah. Okay. I'm explaining as I quote. That's what Matthew's doing here in the beginning part. He's adding on something about Bethlehem Ephrathah. That's actually Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Not even just Judea in Judah. Ring a bell? Judah, who we saw before the Old Testament, the scepter will not depart from Judah, but will stand between his feet until he receives tribute. Foreshadowing, the story's got tribute in it. The one we're talking about is from Judah. Clarifies as he quotes. And then he adds on at the end. The end of this quote is actually not from Micah at all. It's from 2 Samuel 5.2. Totally different verse. Why'd you tack that on there? It's less well-known, but it's from a really pivotal time in history. In 2 Samuel 5, if you were to go back there, what's happening there is the civil war is ending. After Saul died, the people of God were divided. Some backed David and some did not, and they fought a war for a number of years, and it's about to end right there in 2 Samuel 5. All of God's people are coming together under one single ruler, David. And as these ones who had not been with him, they come to him and they acknowledge, you are king, they quote God. Of what God said about David, they affirm. You, David, this is what's true of you. You are to be shepherd of my people Israel as they all come together under him. Matthew adds that in on the end here to further explain who this Christ is. So put it all together. It's a simple point if we can avoid getting lost in all the weeds. Hopefully we didn't get lost in all the weeds. It's a simple point. The wise men ask about the birthplace of the king of the Jews. And Matthew tells them in an answer in a way that elaborates, clarifies, teaches as he gives it. What they all mean, readers, the king of the Jews 
is God's specially anointed shepherd of all of his people. There's only one of all of his people. All who are his are shepherded by this one, and he's going to lead all of God's people into the peace and security of safe pasture, like David was called to but was never quite able to do. So from the line of Judah, a ruler like David but better, God's chosen king, that one is to be born where? Where? In Bethlehem, which is just five or six miles right over there, right? Well, look, there's a star again, right there. And they follow the star out to the exact house where he was, and they saw him there with Mary, his mother. What's the point? Jesus fits again exactly. Simple point. Just as was predicted, the constant point throughout these first couple chapters of Matthew, Matthew has an apologetic concern going on here. And I realize apologetics, giving an answer for the faith, that's not only for those who are on the outside and don't believe. It is helpful for them. But it's also helpful for those who are on the inside and believe. What he's doing is, rather than pulling the Jenga bricks out, like all the world's constantly trying to do, taking it out, taking it out, he's putting the Jenga bricks back in, fortifying, steadying up the tower. You've got a tower, it's sitting there, but maybe it wobbles a little bit. If somebody says, what about? He says, yeah, what about? Pushes it back in. Pushes that one back in, that one back in. Apologetically, he's speaking to us and saying, again and again and again, the lineage... Yep, the predicted, really unique virgin conception and birth. Yep, born in Bethlehem, right there. Again and again and again. And eventually he's going to say, unspokenly, he's going to say, as all of this stuff happens, doesn't the probability that this is the one actually kind of like go like rising? I mean, the probability is, if I was to tell you Somebody here today, pick a small town in Alabama, and in the year 2522, I'm going to tell you, someone's going to be born right there. I'm going to tell you where he's going to be born. I'm going to tell you how he's going to be born. And I'm going to tell you is he's going to become king. He's going to have two degrees from Harvard. And then after that, he's going to become the president of the United States. And then after that, he's going to be the, the, the head of the UN, born in the year 2522, right there. If I said that and then wrote it down and kept it alive until the year 2522 and it happened, you'd be blown away. What are the odds that I would know that? And that's just one of the things. If I also told you his entire family line and told you how he was going to be conceived, and then I told you what he was going to do in his life, what his name was going to be, how he was going to die, where he was going to die, and that he was going to rise again from the dead, you'd be blown away. That's what we're talking about. Christian, put all the Jenga blocks back in. This is real. We get it lost in our Christmas songs. And it becomes charming and sweet and precious. Better than that, it's real. Israel's promised Messiah, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. 
to be crucified under Pontius Pilate, raised again three days later from the dead. That's who we're talking about. As thing after thing after thing after thing happens, the probability just soars. How could it not be? He's the king. This Jesus is the one. We see all the stuff fulfilled. And then on top of that, we also know all that's coming here. Not just the predictions of his death and resurrection, but the kind of life that he lived. Unparalleled. Nobody else born in Bethlehem, nobody else born in Bethlehem ever healed multitudes of diseases and cast out demons and raised the dead. Spoke crushing truth to abusive power and was gentle and lowly with the weak. Nobody else. This is the one. This faith is real and true, which means everything else is not. Which means everything else is not. And we don't need to be arrogant about that. We certainly should not be arrogant about that. But we should be clear about that with ourselves and with others. Everything else is not. Jesus is actually the king of the Jews, which means he's the great king, like David, but better. He's the king of all the world. His realm reaches from the river to the ends of the earth. Old Testament language for the globe. He's the king. So what do you make of that? That leads us to the second observation. King Jesus is news to be rejoiced in and submitted to, not bothered by and resisted. King Jesus is news to be rejoiced in and submitted to, not bothered by and resisted. Herod asked, and we later find out that they told him that they first saw the star two years ago. Now, Herod's got reasons for that, which we'll see. And they aren't because he wants to come worship. But what we see here today is that the star came up two years ago. These guys have been seeking this baby for two years. Now, surely some of that was about planning and probably some of it was waiting till the right travel seasons came along. But this has been a committed two-year-long pilgrimage. They had to have some drive in them to keep after this for that time. Which explains... Their response in verse 10, when they find themselves finally actually standing at the door of the house where they expect to meet the one they've been seeking for all this time. Remember, they don't even know everything from the Old Testament about what this king would be. They don't know about Bethlehem, for instance. They don't even know everything from the Old Testament, let alone all that we know from the New Testament. They just know that this king, whoever he is, is someone that they really, really, really want to meet. And they have given two years of their lives to this pursuit. And they find themselves standing at the door, about to knock, bathed in the light of a miraculous star. And the text practically trips over itself in verse 3. With, I'm, I'm sorry, the text trips over itself with three different compounding words, all describing they're beside themselves, pinch me, I'm dreaming, exceedingly great joy of rejoicing. 
what it says in verse 10. Just kind of, they're beside themselves. Finally, after all these many months and many miles, we're here, we found him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Or better, probably. They fell down and paid him profound homage and submitted respect and reverence. Because they think they're coming looking for a king. They don't think they're seeking a god to worship. They're coming to find a great king. So falling down to pay him homage and respect would be appropriate. That being said, this word does also mean worship. And Matthew uses it on purpose repeatedly. Surely because he wants to trigger in our minds. Yeah, okay, but I think they're doing more than they know they're doing. Because Jesus is a king, worthy of being respectfully revered and honored, but also worthy of being worshipped. And that's what they're doing, both together in the same word. They fell down before him to pay him homage, to worship him. They throw themselves prostrate before this almighty little baby. These guys are powerful Gentiles from a long way off. What in the world are they doing face down on a dirt floor in Nowheresville, Judah? What in the world? They know something. They, they sense something. They fall down in front of him. They pay him homage, worship even, and they bring the treasures of the nations to lay them at his feet. The paying of tribute, like an inferior does to a superior. Laying it in front of a, of a little Judean baby. They offered up gold, of course. Yeah, of course. But also frankincense and myrrh because frankincense and myrrh were extremely expensive spices and ointments. Luxury items. They, they could not have had anything more expensive to give him. They brought him their money, they brought him themselves, and they laid it all down, face down in front of him, Here's me in exceedingly great rejoicing joy. Here's everything. A remarkable echo, think back to the Old Testament, of the Queen of Sheba offering up gold and frankincense to David's son Solomon. A remarkable echo of Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11, where the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands, again, Gentile lands, render to God's Messiah tribute, bringing him gifts, falling down before him. A remarkable echo of Isaiah 60, verse, verse 6, where the animals of Midian and Ephah and Sheba come bringing gold and frankincense. Praises to the Lord. That's how the Old Testament repeatedly depicts appropriate response, Gentile response, to David's great son. It's a remarkable echo of that. 
and a remarkable, stunning contrast to Herod and all Jerusalem. But doesn't do any of this or anything remotely like any of this. You get, you get to feel that in the story. When Herod the king heard this, he rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. No, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, troubled. Not delighted, not even curious. Deeply bothered. This coming king is a problem for them. Now, Herod's feigned interest reveals he's, he's got literally murderous intent. He is actively against his king, but most people aren't actively against him. Most people just realize that Herod, by this point in his life, is a significant wild card. And Herod's killed a bunch of people around him already, most of his family dead at his own hand. He's just, if there's a rival to him, we don't know what's going to happen there. And so really, were most people in Jerusalem are troubled by this because, frankly, things were going just great, and now Jesus showed up and upset the whole apple cart. I wish he hadn't come. I don't have anything, I don't care, other than that this is going to mess with my life. So you've got rabid, murderous opposition, and don't care, leave me alone, things are going fine elsewise. Both of which are actually the same response. I want to be in charge of me. Let me be in charge of me. Butt out, Jesus. That's, the, that's their response. To keep self on the throne, self-setting my agenda, self-controlling my options. I'm the ruler, not him. That remains the common reaction of the world today. Through him all things were made. He owns it all. He rules it all. He has the right to be honored and obeyed and followed. His will should be done on earth as it is in heaven because both places are equally fully his. But that's troubling for a lot of people, for most people throughout all of history, today included. Not for lack of evidence. The evidence is right here. The, the Jenga tower is intact. But it's never been about evidence. Never mind the evidence. I want. I want to call the shot for my own life. That's the problem. That has always been the human problem and it still is. I want to call the shot for my own life. This is a problem for me because he keeps calling out for the throne and I don't want to give it up. That's the, that's the voice of the world never realizing that the rule of Jesus when he gets on the throne, what's he about? He's about leading people into life. That's also clear from all the evidence. Jesus says repeatedly and shows 
repeatedly. He's come not to judge. There's a judgment coming, but Jesus did not come to judge. Jesus comes and calls for the throne because he wants to shepherd. We all think, we are people who walk around the earth and think we've got it all together, that things are going just fine until you show up. But we are, in fact, harassed and helpless sheep. We need a shepherd. And God, in grace, sent one, sent this one, Jesus, to lead people into life. And tragically, that is missed. Gracious authority is offered in Jesus for all who humbly get off the throne and surrender your control to him. So that needs to be said and understood and maybe soberly faced by perhaps some here. You need to hear that if you're not a Christian. So there, there there's, there's something that's kind of a, a confrontation in that, but please see it. He says, get off the throne I will get on and I will lead you to life. And otherwise you can't find it. Hear that, please. From King Jesus. He's a shepherd. He means to do good. So, I say that to those who at the moment here are not Christians. But oddly, in fact, first and foremost, Matthew is writing to the church. That needs to be heard in here first by us. Jesus is king. Do you embrace that with exceeding joy like these wise men? Exceeding joy like these wise men. The object, is this, this your language, the object of my seeking I have found Thanks be to God. Now here is everything that I am and everything that I have offered to you gladly, gladly, gladly. Not grudgingly. Gladly, gladly, gladly. Take it. You run the show. You sit on the throne. You lead me. Gladly, gladly, gladly. Is that your response? Or are you, if you're honest, you find yourself a bit troubled. Now, I think it's helpful to understand the difference between an intellectual and a, a spiritual, maybe you might call it a moral, but I think it's an intellectual and a spiritual problem. Like intellectually, you know you shouldn't be. You're a Christian. But the question I'm asking is, do you find yourself a bit troubled? Like, I know it, but I kind of got things going the way I like them to go. So please stop pushing him onto the throne and pushing me off. To put that a little differently, and I'm going to paraphrase something that theologian Sinclair Ferguson wrote. I'm going to modify it to fit our context here, but Here, receive, hear this. This is me pushing. King Jesus has the right to forbid us from giving any room in our lives to anything that displeases him. I make that personal. 
King Jesus has the right to forbid you from giving any room in your life to anything that displeases him. There's push. Do you resist that? Secondly, King Jesus has the right to require that we live loyal to him for his glory. Let's say personal. King Jesus not only has the right to forbid you from doing X, but he also has the right to require that you live loyal to him for his glory. His agenda. Center of the windshield. Front view. Do you resist that? You put those things together, he's requiring concerted effort on our part. We must strive, he's saying, this is what being a king means, that he has the right, he has the authority to call us to strive, to keep things out of our lives and put things into our lives to put out what displeases him and to put in what honors him. A solid 75% of the time. No. No. At least 80. No, all the time. All the time. Does that bother you just a little bit? We must strive after that. Now, of course, it does not tell us, it doesn't give you any details, but it gets us oriented in the right direction, Godward, kingward. He's a king. He's the king. Has the right to be followed. He is our leader. Wherever he leads, he's in charge. So we must take our thoughts captive and submit them to Christ. Like a good soldier, we must make it our aim to please the one who enlisted us. Like a good athlete, we discipline our bodies to keep them under control to compete according to God's rules. That's in the Bible, right? All that's in the Bible, right? Right? To Christians. Giving our all to him for his purposes. Push. And just like the world, there rises up in us some resistance to that. Because just like the world, because you know what? We're just like the world. In a lot of ways, we're people. We're people just like other people. And in us, there's a, I had things going my own way. I thought I was going okay. I think I've got it under control, at least right now. You don't. We're all harassed and helpless like sheep. And if we walk away from him, we do this like sheep without a shepherd. We all need his leadership. We all need his authority. Because, same thing. I'm going to repeat what I just said five minutes ago to everybody else. And I said it's the exact same thing to us. Because his leadership is towards life. He says get off the throne so he can get on and shepherd us into peace. Why would you believe that? Why would you believe that? Why would you believe that? Do you have an answer in your head? Why would you believe that God sent 
his only begotten son to shepherd you into peace. Why would you believe that? Why would you believe that giving up authority to him brings me to life rather than takes it from me? Someone always is whispering in your ear saying, don't do that. It's going to lead you to loss. Don't trust God. It's going to lead you to loss. Someone's whispering that in your ear always. Why would you not believe that? But why would you believe that giving up authority to him leads you to life? Because you've read the rest of the story. You've seen how he acted and how he lived and what he did. And you've seen him go to the cross to deliver you from sin, to deliver you into freedom, and to rise again, to give you his spirit to live inside of you, to walk in newness of oppression. No, 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 no. To walk in newness of life. Full of the Holy Spirit. To to build into you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And to work out of you all the opposite of all that. He wants to shepherd you into life. And he showed you that by dying for you. And rising again with you to life. He pushes. He wants to exert his authority his power, but realize, Christian, put this block back into the tower too. It gets pulled out constantly. God's authority, any authority over me is oppressive. No, 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 put it back in. God's authority is for you for life. Power to save you from all your troubles, and that is grounds for exceedingly great joy in this king and a full concerted effort at yielding to him. The gospel's true. And the king who brings it to you should be trusted with everything. Let me pray. Father. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84 one two one